to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm your host this week, Rick Lee. And as usual, I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Charles Peterson and Lee Johnson. Today, we're talking about national identity. What is it? Where does it come from? How is it formed? And we're also going to focus on national identity in the United States. But before we get to that topic, as usual, I'm going to ask you all for your drink orders. Noel is standing by. So I'll start with you, Charles. What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? In recognition of spring maybe finally appearing, I will be having a vodka and soda with a splash of cranberry juice. Spring splash. Spring splash. <laughs> I will be ranting today, and my rant is fucking Florida. And I say this because I know we don't spend enough time talking about the problems in Florida and the governance by Rick DeSantis, but I just want to carve out a space for that because Rick DeSantis has ordered the exclusion of 28 math textbooks from the Florida public school curriculum because somehow math teaches CRT. Nuh-uh. Uh-huh. Clearly it does. Clear- <laughs> so that is so mind-bogglingly stupid. I have no words for it. That's my rant. Ugh. Lee, what are you drinking? And are you ranting or raving? I mean, honestly, I just want to go bury myself after that, <laughs> after hearing <laughs> Charles's rant. But Math books. Math books. Did he find out that the Egyptians created the isosceles triangle and that's what he's trying to get to? What the hell? I'm going to have my usual a Fireball and Diet Coke. And today I'm actually going to rave about good neighbors. In particular, I am raving about my actual neighbors. We had this couple move into the house behind us, and they moved in literally a month before COVID started. One of the great things is that one of them opened a microbrewery in Memphis that, you know, struggled for the first year or so. But as he was working things out, we kept getting free beer delivered on our porch for a year. And they've just recently celebrated the one-year anniversary of the real opening of the brewery. So shout out to Hampline Brewery right here in Memphis, Tennessee, and shout out to Wes and Laura, our neighbors who are actual friends, and especially Wes, who makes really great beer. So Rick, what are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? Noel, I'll have a whiskey sour. And this week I am ranting And I know that my co-hosts will think, Rick, check your calendar again. You're ranting about the wrong thing. I am ranting about Anita Bryant. Wait, what? I'm sorry. Wow. <laughs> this is 1985. I know. Did we go back in time? I know we were going to have a time travel episode, but is that this one? I'm for this, though. I'm for it. Go, Rick. So let me wrap this within a rave. Slate has been doing this podcast called One Year. This season, they're doing 1977. And that was the year in which Anita Bryant was doing her anti-gay crusade. And this is a sub rant against Florida again. But (laughs) in listening back to this episode, I had forgotten how perhaps Anita Bryant and this anti-gay crusade put a certain Republican conservative reactionary message on the public map as a political strategy. So I am ranting about Anita Bryant, who, strangely, is still alive. (laughs) Strangely. (laughs) You know what keeps the heart pumping? Hate. 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 Well, it's true. It's like if the good die young and the evil live forever. And that seems to be the case with Anita Bryant. The hateful ones live the longest. 
We're talking about you, Mitch McConnell. Well, that's not fair. Mitch McConnell's a zombie. He has no soul. So death really does not apply to him in the way that we'd expect it to apply to human beings. So, Charles, I know today we're talking about national identity. What are we going to talk about? How did we come to this? What are the issues? I remember in grad school, I was writing a paper for a class, and I came across an article where the interviewer was speaking with a politician that was talking about cultural balkanization, you know, the culture wars of the 90s. And one of the lines that the interview subject used was, we could be moving from an idea of the United States is to the United States are, which is kind of a pre-Civil War sense of the nation and national identity. And I've always thought of it as a really compelling idea as far as the United States being understood not as a singular national entity, but having these fissures and these cracks and these partitions that allow for different ideas of what the nation is and who Americans are and even what citizenship is and the ways in which that breaks along racial lines or geographical lines or ideological lines or religious lines. And I thought that was a really interesting question to ask now in the midst of very serious, not just partisanship, that's the language that's used in our news media, but a very real split in terms of the national consciousness that's taking place in the United States. And I thought this would be a really interesting topic for the very real theoretical possibilities of exploring what do we mean by national identity? How does it get forged? What are the mechanics of it? How is it maintained? And how does it track in the midst of what we're experiencing in the United States now? Okay, so Charles, I'm really super interested in this topic. And, you know, it's weird because I I think I just heard only a few months ago President Joe Biden tell me that the State of the Union is strong. <laughs> so it seems <laughs> like in some ways you do want to talk about the State of the Union, right? Like what is the state of national identity in the United States? But before we do that, this won't come as any surprise to you. I want to know, what do you mean by national identity? I think of national identity as the concepts that fuse the citizens of a society together and have them understanding themselves as being a, a part of a single entity. Now, we can still recognize various differences along demographic lines or along gender lines or along lines of, of region, beliefs, so forth and so on. But a national identity are the elements or the characteristics that all of those constituents, all of those citizens understand as being central to or common to every person that sees themselves as a member of this nation, as an American, as a Canadian, as a French person. This is what makes me that, this particular or this, this set of characteristics. Charles, in your giving that general outline of what would characterize national identity, one question that occurs to me is just looking back in history, I don't think I can identify a single nation state that has not been a multi-ethnic, multi-class, multi-gendered, multi-even racial, no matter how broadly you want to construe that, conglomeration of people. So even England, that today in the 21st century, seems to be the most unified in terms of its national identity, has been a conglomeration of tribes historically that have been battling and contesting. And I can't think of a single nation that was not a conglomeration of multiple identities in this sense. Can I, can I jump in here? Because, I mean, Sweden... Denmark, <laughs> South Korea. Okay, okay, so I would agree to South Korea. I think in terms of Sweden and Denmark, there have been historically multiple tribes, groups with their own language and cultures that have been forged maybe long ago, but have been forged into a national identity. So that's part of my point, that there are really only unique instances of a nation that has a national identity that has no internal differences. This is why this is going to be an interesting conversation, or one of the reasons why. Pulling from Francis Fukuyama's essay, Why National Identity Matters, he posits the nation 
as existing prior to the modern era, which I think is in contradiction to the ways in which a lot of political theorists will consider the nation and the state. And we could talk about the difference between those two terms. But he articulates that this particular formulation exists in a variety of ways. So whereas Rick pointed out multi-ethnic societies, it does not have to be based upon a question of ethnicity or what we call race or any sort of biologically based characteristic. The nation as such can exist along different lines of commonality. This is a constructed thing. So the fact that it is constructed allows for it to be formed along various issues or concerns or characteristics or elements. It doesn't have to be an ethnic or racial or a biologically based characteristic that allows for the nation to exist. Yeah, but I think what's interesting about Fukuyama's essay is that when he's trying to give examples of nations that are prior to what we would call the modern nation state, all the examples that he can give are groups that were capable of forming a nation primarily on the basis of exactly what you just said, race, blood, etc. So what Rick is saying is that the modern nation state is always already diverse before it constitutes itself as a nation state. And I think maybe one of the things that we need to talk about, and Fukuyama pretty much invites us to ask this question in his essay, is whether or not there's something different between the nation and the nation state. I think a nation are those common elements which could be biological, which could be ethnic, but those are the elements that give the population, the residents, the constituents, the citizens, a sense of connectedness across this expanse of territory. It's the common idea or the common sensibility. The state, for me, is the apparatus that governs that. It is the form of government, the administrative power, the bureaucratic and the organizational capability. That's the state. It's the framework that moderates or regulates the nation. Following from Charles' point, I find that Fukuyama does not pay enough attention to the fact that the territory has been established through extra identity means, primarily through warfare and claiming this is the territory. And then the question is, what is the identity within this territory we have established? Or in other words, how could we make it so that everyone within this territory now shares the project of who we are within this territory? Charles described the nation as being bound together by race, by blood, by territory, and the idea of the nation. I think that maybe it's the idea of the nation that is the transition from the nation to the modern nation state. I completely agree with you, Charles, that what makes it a state is the bureaucracy, the laws, the traditions, the institutions. But what comes along with all of those things is the idea that we are a people. I think that's well said. I completely agree with that. Though I would say to Rick's point about the formation of the nation, I agree. What Fukuyama does not talk about are the ways in which the nation is constructed, the way in which it's expanded. I want to keep up on the fact that nations expand, that territories expand, the populations come into contact with each other, not just solely through warfare. If we think about medieval Europe or aristocratic or feudal states, marriage. Marriage becomes a way by which one can expand this thing called the nation and bring new populations together under a singular rubric or a singular idea. But even there, Charles... The first step is the territory, even if it's by marriage, that this is the territory in which we are a people, whatever way it comes to be, it's about the territory. And then I think once the territory is established, then the question of identity becomes contested. And by the way, marriage is just a way of extending a bloodline, right? It's just to say that you weren't my blood, but now you are. Sure. In a weird rethinking of Clausewitz, marriage is war by other means. <laughs> <laughs> no, that seems true. That definitely seems true. And marriage was often a way of preventing war. Exactly. Which goes to your point that marriage is war by other means. But even given that, then I wonder, does history now play a role in constructing 
the national identity, that we have always been like this. This is just who we are, and a story needs to be told about how we have always been we, even though we have been other before. And I think this is the challenge to the nation state that Fukuyama presents that he, I think, doesn't see existing for the nation, the pre-nation state nation. So one of the things that I think is really interesting about the way that Fuyama just sets up this essay is he says, the problem of national identity is a problem of identity politics. And he means identity politics in the way that all of us who live through the 80s and 90s are, you know, are like ripping our <laughs> headphones off right now because right. it is too much to even hear those it's, words. It's right. triggering. It's triggering as hell. <laughs> it's, it's, it's for real triggering, yes. So his argument is that, and th- okay, so I'm just going to admit that I have some pretty deep-seated prejudices against some of Fukuyama's analyses, not only in this essay, but over the course of his career. I also think that he does have a lot of really good arguments in this essay. But one of the things that is very clear is that he begins this essay by saying, we have this crisis of national identity, and he's really talking about in the United States and Europe because identity politics has made it complicated. The examples that he gives for less complicated notions of national identity are all examples of pre-nation state nations. So nations that already, he presumes, have some kind of an understanding of who, quote-unquote, the people Mm. are, what, quote-unquote, the nation is. And he thinks the real problem of national identity for modern nation states is that, just going back to what Rick said, they are diverse. They are multiracial. They have gross economic stratification. They have, God forbid, women who vote. And queer people, so it is a real crisis for modern nation states to even say who the quote unquote people are because there is this diversity and for people like Fukuyama, diversity means identity politics in a bad way. Foucault in his lecture course, Society Must Be Defended, started looking Mm -hmm. at the contest in England among the Anglo-Saxons, which already is a conglomeration of warring tribes, but he looks at the contestation of Anglo-Saxons against the Normans and is pointing out the ways in which the Anglo-Saxons were struggling against the Norman, quote-unquote, foreign invasion centuries after the Norman invasion ever took place and were trying to reclaim the national identity of Anglo-Saxon England against the Normans. And there, I think this is not the point of his lecture course, But I think the consequence is this was a multi-ethnic population that did not have an identity in common. The identity came to be, I think, through territory and conquest. And then it became a constant struggle about who are we? What does it mean to be English, for example? And I think that's a really interesting moment to look at in terms of national identity. And I think that's contrary to the way that Fukuyama is looking at it. Because I think when Fukuyama is talking about the crisis of national identity, he's talking about modern nation states that have diverse populations. When he tries to point to modern nation states that he thinks should not be having a crisis of national identity. He points to states in the Middle East. He points to states in sub-Saharan Africa, which to me is just a racist claim about these states, the Arab states, the sub-Saharan African states. It's so confusing. Why are they having a crisis of national identity? They're all the same race. They're all the same people in his mind. And when he points to modern states that are not having a crisis of national identity, who does he point to? China, Japan. South Korea. Yeah. What I think is a a failing of Fukuyama's argument 
is the way that he relied to the fact that you have ethnic groups that achieve dominance and then begin to impose a national identity upon other populations. I have not left the idea that there are various ways in which a singular national identity can be established beyond ethnicity or beyond race. But the fact that he spends so little time recognizing that nations are part of a larger hegemonic program, that specific groups were able to establish a dominance and then impose their sense of what the nation is upon other groups. For me, the biggest flaw in Fukuyama's argument in this piece is that he does not spend the proper time acknowledging that nation states are organized because of specific ethnic, cultural, class, or in some cases racial group, establishes a dominance over the other populations within that society. And they impose their will and their consciousness and their identity, and that creates the nation. So you would say national identity is the identity of the dominant class in modern nation states? To sound like a Marxist, yes. <laughs> and also I would say that because the dominant identity takes over the identity of that nation, the pre-existing differences are now either pushed out of the frame or alighted in the new national identity. Yes. And this is why people like Fukuyama get their panties in a wad. Because <laughs> that's identity politics. <laughs> Hey, listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philo spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, back to our conversation. So, Charles, Fukuyama points to a number of characteristics that he indicates are positive features that show why national identity is important. And I was wondering, what do you take of those characteristics? Is he wrongheaded? Is he misguided? Is this a compelling argument to you? I think it is a compelling argument that I think he can expand better. It's a question of the legitimacy that nation states or, or national identity has to maintain. There are qualities and there are elements and characteristics that the nation and the nation state, the apparatus that governs the nation, has to prove itself able to command in order to maintain the commitment of the citizen. If we're talking about now a democratic state, if we're now talking about a state under the rubric of a social contract. And he talked about that as well. But these are elements that the nation state has to show itself capable of presenting and guaranteeing in order to maintain commitment to the nation on the part of those citizens. So I think these are very strong and very sharp, insightful characteristics and qualities that he details. So maybe it's worth just delineating them. So in these few short pages in Fukuyama's argument, he basically says, why is national identity important? First of all, it's important for security. Second of all, it's important because it makes the very possibility of a functioning government possible. Third, because it allows for economic development. Fourth, because it promotes what he calls trust, by which he means political participation. Fifth, because it promotes a kind of economic equality. This was a little bit of a sketchy argument in my book, but he says that national identity requires that governments provide social safety nets and therefore provide some measure of economic equality. And then finally, he says that national identity makes democracy itself possible. One of the things I think that Charles is really picking up on there is that all of this is against a larger backdrop that Fukuyama describes as, this is not his words, but sort of winning the hearts and minds of the people. He describes it as bolstering or supporting or 
maybe even grounding the thumos of the people, the spirit, the heart of the people. So national identity is on Fukuyama's own account an ideal in some ways, but it's an affective ideal. It's not just a question of winning the hearts and the minds of the people, but it's a very real question of being able to meet the needs, the materiality of the communities that populate the nation. In order to win the hearts and the minds of the people, you have to be able to provide and help the people realize what their specific goals may be and the recognition of the importance of that through their relationship to the apparatus or the state. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting about what Fukuyama is saying, though, is that what you're describing is only possible if you've already won the hearts and minds of the people. So that the nation state can only function to provide the possibility for a functional government, to grow economically, to set social safety nets for the least advantage in any particular population, if it's already won the hearts and minds of the people such that the people understand themselves as belonging to a national identity that has all of those powers. And I think Lee points out here one difficulty with Fukuyama's argument, namely that, as Charles put it before, the identity or my ability to identify, maybe that's the better way to put it, with the nation is contingent upon satisfying of needs. And Lee is pointing out Fukuyama's argument is saying, wait a second, that's only possible on the basis of my already identifying with the people. And so there seems to be this dichotomy that I don't think Fukuyama addresses adequately, namely, do I identify because my needs are being satisfied or do I feel my needs are satisfied because I identify? Yeah, it's like this weird Mobius strip of a national identity, mm. right? Like that nice. the national identity has to be in place in order for the people right. who identify as members of that national identity to feel that their needs are being satisfied. But the people have to identify with that national identity in order to satisfy the people <laughs> whose identity would be satisfied by that national identity. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's not the best metaphor, but it is a weird catch-22 that he's setting up here, right? Well, I mean, the, the problem that you're recognizing, I think, in, extremely accurately, he is not taking this idea of the social contract very seriously. He references it, but he doesn't carry it forth. If we use this contract, certain rights and powers are given to the state, the administrative apparatus, by the people. I have the inherent right to defend myself. I will give that to the state if the state agrees to successfully defend me in times of trauma, stress, or war. I have freedom for economic development, but if the state is willing to create the grounds and the, and the conditions by which I can develop economically, then I would give that inherent individual right to the state to do that. He doesn't take that seriously. The, that's why you have this weird Mobius strip. National identity or the citizen's commitment to national identity, this chicken or the egg circumstance, because he's not really, really holding these states to the fire of holding up their side of the social contract. But the states are the people, right? Like, I, I wonder if the Mobius strip here that we're identifying in the relationship between national identity and the so-called people who constitute national identity is the exact same Mobius strip that we got in the social contract throughout the entire 17th and 18th century. Right, and to follow directly from that, if there is a social contract, what is the society with whom I'm contracting? It seems like the contract itself establishes the society, but the very act of contracting requires that the society, who we are, already is there in the first place. That's another way of saying the Mobius strip. And maybe this calls a lie to the entire social contract tradition. Well, I think what it does is for those populations, and we mentioned this in the last segment, for those populations whose sort of variance or difference or the ways in which their narratives or their perspectives are being erased or ignored or marginalized, for those populations, it does not exist. The social contract 
or this creation of this particular nation state exists upon a foundation that's already established. Certain power dynamics, particular class relations, all that's in place. Now we're just consolidating it and formalizing it in a particular form. But for those who are already outside of those systems, entrance into the question of a national identity and their resentment, and that's the yeah. word he used which made me laugh. The resentment that these populations have is now beyond the pale and no longer legitimate or valued by the established order that has maintained itself, but in a different sort of calculation. I mean, I think that that is a brilliant point, Charles, and you are drawing out what is deeply unsettling to me about Fukuyama's analysis here is that at the end of the day, he thinks the problem confronting national identity is a problem of identity politics. He thinks that the problem confronting national identity is that either there are these people who are so resentfully attached to their own identities that they can't give themselves over to participation in a national identity or the problem with national identity is that there are these people who have such a restrictive understanding of national identity that they're like, we need to take our country back. But that the whole battle is identity politics. And he's not actually understanding that it just is what Derrida would call the operia of the nation state to establish an identity that is consistent enough among the demos, the people, that the people can identify with it but at the same time has limits so that the people can identify themselves as this people and not another people, that is just a philosophical problem. Right. The real question Fukuyama should be asking is, why is liberal democracy having such difficulties with multicultural democracy? But that is the question that he's asking, isn't it? But I think he's asking in a way to problematize multicultural democracy, as opposed to understanding that this construction of liberal democracy that has brought in all of these pre-nation state sensibilities, that's the problem. It's not the multicultural quest for a democratic order. It's the fact that the preceding order But I is think, the Charles, your point goes back to something Lee pointed out, namely that when he looks at what he calls identity politics, he labels all of that a politics of resentment. Yeah. He doesn't ever consider that there is a positive national identity that is being put forward by queer folk, by black folk, by lower class saying, wait a second, I want to identify, but you are making it impossible. And that's not resentment. It's a demand that I contracted with you all and you are leaving me behind. And to call out that you are leaving me behind is not resentment. I completely agree with you, Rick. And as I was reading this essay, in the margins, I have next to his discussion of BLM yes. and hashtag me too, where he points that out as challenges yeah. national identity. I have in big capital letters, what the fuck? Right. You know, like... That is national identity. That is the best expression of national identity. That is what he calls identity politics, and he means identity politics in a pejorative way. And that, to me, is in complete contradiction to his earlier point that it is only a diverse understanding of national identity that makes democracy possible at all. Thank you so much for that, Lee. That was absolutely amazing. What Fukuyama does not understand is that Fannie Lou Hamer's conception of the nation state, her conception of the utopian society, what King called the beloved community, even what LBJ called the great society, that that is the true realization of what he's talking about, of the nation state as theoretically constructed, but on the ground is always mm. undermined. And Charles, don't you think that the way Fukuyama rejects that notion is by alighting Black Lives Matter, hashtag me too. There's a hashtag in his essay. <laughs> <laughs> Look at him getting all modern and shit. History is not over, Fukuyama. You just hashtag. The hashtag was in invented after your end of history essay. Fukuyama got jiggy with it. The hashtag was invented after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Note it, listeners. Note it. <laughs> 
But when he aligns Black Lives Matter, Me Too, and there are a couple of others that I don't even want to look back at with resentment. So as Lee said in the margins of his essay, when he aligned that with resentment in my margins, I have no, 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 no. (laughs) (laughs) This is a less obscene version of my marginal comments. I would have preferred that he just completely erase those movements than to equate them with MAGA. Mm to equate them with this backlash, the white supremacist backlash, resulting in the rise of Donald Trump. Don't say BLM at all if you're going to say that it's the same type of emotional, psychological, political movement as the Tea Party, as MAGA, as the rise of Trump. Oh my God, are you kidding me? This isn't resentment, at least that this is a demand right. for real citizenship and real inclusion in the democratic experiment. Yeah, and I mean, he wrote this essay in 2019. He is not unaware of what's going on. The fact that he names BLM and he names hashtag me too, and yet when he's talking about people who quote unquote want to take the country back for us, for us people... He does not name them. And they have a name, right? They have a name in 2019. As you said, the Tea Party, the Trumpists, whatever. We can refer to them as a people that are contesting national identity in the same way that we might refer wrongly to BLM and Me Too as contesting the national identity. Fukuyama is showing his cards here. Yeah. Just look at the names following the hashtag or following Black Lives. Black Lives Matter, Me Too, is not a movement toward non-identity. It's a gesture toward, I agree. I agree with the ideals, and I'm saying, Me Too. I'm saying, We Matter. And that is not resentment. That's an incredible positive gesture. Hey, look over here. Yeah, we're with you, but you've left us behind. And more importantly, it's not a movement against national identity. It's not hashtag I hate America. It's not hashtag I'm not American. It's hashtag you don't know what American identity is. Like you are misrepresenting national identity. I'm also a part of this national identity. Get on the boat or get out of my way. That is the hashtag. At least in this part of the essay that we're discussing, Fukuyama has just completely missed the boat here. Charles, one thing I'm wondering about your reading of the Fukuyama essay is that he seems to think that in the U.S., this question of national identity is our problem. And I wonder what you think about first his diagnosis of that as our problem, and then the specifics about the ways in which he diagnoses our specific U.S. problem. I think Fukuyama's recognition that the United States is really suffering from a problem of national identity is not wrong. He is completely right. Mm -hmm. Though I do have some doubts about how he's right (laughs) and more so how he's wrong. Charles Peterson is like, nice try, sir. Swing and a miss. E for efforts. (laughs) I think where he's wrong is the presumption that this is a contemporary and a fairly recent problematic. I think the historical events that he mentions, which are all within the last five or six years, because this essay is written in, in 2019, completely ignore 200 odd years of problematic national functioning. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the critiques that we've had of his essay over the previous two segments are exactly what he said is not how a national identity should function. 
but everything that he says is wrong with the attempt to construct a national identity. So what mm-hmm. I wonder about that is the ways he construes identity seem to me, if not misplaced, at least not directed toward other ways in which national identity could be forged. And what I kept wondering through his essay in relation to the U.S., is can't we not found a national identity over the Declaration of Independence? Can't we form a national identity over the Constitution? And then let me broaden that out to include all of the amendments. It seems like we could have a national identity that is forged not on the basis of any of the ways in which any of us identify But toward this, as you said, Charles, you hate and you love this expression, toward a more perfect union, toward these rights are self-evident, toward the 14th Amendment's reincorporation of the Declaration of Independence into the Constitution, that that could be a way to form national identity And he seems to reject that because he seems to think that any claim based on either the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution, including all of the amendments, is strangely divisive. Well, let me say this, if I could, that if you're going to make an argument that a national identity can be based on an ideal like the ones that you just described, that the essay that you write Defending that notion of national identity cannot include a section that is titled The Problem with Immigration or a section that is titled The Identity of the People. I want to be generous to Fukuyama and say that when he says the problem of immigration, he means the perceived problem of immigration of no, that's oh, bullshit. I don't. Because he doesn't even walk that back, my friend. As it's coming out of my mouth, I'm like, no, because I remember reading that and thinking, how do you talk about immigration and the perception of immigrants coming into the nation without mentioning race or the racialization of, of certain immigrants coming from the late 19th or the, uh, the mid 19th into the early 20th century? I mean, what do you? So yeah. And how so do you have right. a section titled "The Problem of Immigration" that establishes the problem of immigration as a problem for the dominant population, and then right. after that, not preceding that, after that, have a section called "Who Are the People." Like, the people are obviously the fucking people who have a problem with immigration. (laughs) Oh, Francis. Bless your heart, Francis. And bless your heart. We were so optimistic when we started this, but oh, look where you have fallen. We were not optimistic. (laughs) I am not an analytically trained philosopher. But let me say that Fukuyama's essay has the appearance of arguments, but not the reality. Mm -hmm of Mm -hmm. arguments. I want to sort of take back some of my hesitation about critical thinking. You all thought, (laughs) you know, critical thinking is helpful. (laughs) And I think this is one essay in which when I teach informal logic, I would love to bring this essay to my students to show where the conclusion is presumed and the ways in which the conclusion is a premise of the argument. I mean, this is a case study in begging the question. Exactly. And not begging the question in which most people think begging the question means asking an important question, but like philosophically begging the question. So when you hear begging the question, one might think, I want the question, but philosophically begging the question means (laughs) you assume the conclusion and then your argument Ha ha! Concludes that very conclusion. And I think on this point exactly, it begs the conclusion in that it presupposes we are the people, and then immigration is a problem for we, and yet doesn't ever question when we became the people and who those immigrants were who became the people. Because 
I mean, this is just facts on the ground. None of us white or black folk <laughs> are indigenous to this nation. So we are all right. immigrants. Right. So why now immigration poses a problem for who we are is, again, question begging. Well, not all of us were immigrants. So let me rephrase that. Not all of us were indigenous to this country. And we came here in different ways. But that also begs the question of when exactly and who exactly were we the people? Fukuyama does kind of wave his hand at this. He says, okay, there's this French philosopher, Pierre Mamont, who says all democracies are built on a kind of assumed people. But he proceeds as if the assumed people and the assumed people's identities are race-based in a way that's non-problematic. What he fails to do is to recognize that if you're going to consolidate if you're going to establish, if you're going to create this positive identity, then you necessarily have to have a negative identifier, mm-hmm. right, in order to make that happen. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to create this thing called the United States of America with this particular ethnic, religious, cultural, geographic hegemony, you have to have something that does not fit into the definitions or the self-awareness or the assertions of that class. So you have to have the African You have to have the indigenous population. So you always have to have the negation or the negated other of your society in order to construct yourself. And he fails, he fails, he fails to understand that the nation is a negative entity because we are what we are not. So let me ask you this question, Charles. For the last, honestly, for the whole of my life, I hear the president of the United States say, The State of the Union is strong. And I don't think it's too far of a stretch to assume that the implication of that claim is we all share a national identity. And often it's explicitly articulated in exactly that way. The State of the Union is strong. We all believe that there is hope in America. We all believe in freedom. We all believe in justice that we all believe that we are working towards a common cause, that we are participating in this experiment of democracy together as a people. And I want to ask you, is the State of the Union strong? It depends on who do you define as the Union. Because the State of the Union is strong if I'm an oligarch who just received a tremendous tax break from the Trump-era tax cuts. The State of the Union is strong if my political influence has been expanded because of voter suppression or or rules to marginalize minority or poor voters. It depends on who you define as the union. I would love to have a president say the state of the union is quite weak. And it's weak because not every American is guaranteed full, equal, fair access to the ballot. The state of the union is weak because we do not have a proper social safety net to help those who hit difficult economic times. The state of the nation is weak because we do not have a regulatory police force which treats every citizen fairly and treats them with the dignity that we say we value as inherent to the human spirit. The state of the union is weak. But if there was ever a year to say that, wasn't this the year? President Joe Biden gave his State of the Union address less than a month after the literal storming of the Capitol by people who believed that they were taking back, quote unquote, our country. I don't know who they were taking it back from. I can get... Oh, you know. You you know (laughs) who they were taking it. You you damn... Okay, fair play. But you see what I'm saying. There was never a, a moment in American history where the message should not have been the state of the union is strong. Our national identity is disintegrating because we can't identify who the people is anymore. We don't share an idea. Charles, I don't want to miss any chances to dunk on Fukuyama once again. <laughs> so, like, I want to talk about this last move that he makes in his essay, Why National Identity Matters. 
he starts to talk about global cosmopolitanism, which I think is a really important thing to talk about if you're talking about a crisis of national identity. And he says that global cosmopolitanism is an outdated concept. I'm just going to quote this because this was another one of those sections where my marginal notes say WTF (laughs) question mark exclamation point. He says, the idea that states are obsolete and should be superseded by international bodies is flawed because no one has been able to come up with a good method for holding such international bodies democratically accountable. Okay, so first of all, no, (laughs) right? Like, first of all, the fact that no one's come up with an idea for how to execute something, it does not mean that it's a flawed idea. So first that... And also second that and third that and fourth that. (laughs) But I really do think this is where Fukuyama is showing his cards. Is that Fukuyama has an idea that national identity is not just important, as his title says, but is essential. And in order for national identity to be essential, the nation state has to be essential. And despite the fact that he lays out very good and very clear arguments why the nation state might be an outdated concept, which, by the way, I think it is, because all of our problems are global problems, because if we want to talk about rights, we're talking about global rights. So despite the fact that he sets out a very good argument why the nation state might be an outdated concept, he still can't help himself but go back to the nation state. (laughs) The relationship of African-descended peoples to the nation-state is a fairly recent phenomenon if we think about Mm -hmm. citizenship, Mm -hmm. rights, Mm. privileges, opportunities as a part of the package of being a citizen. So this is fairly recent. So arguably, I could say I have been a relatively vested citizen within the United States since 1964-1965 versus being a historical subject here since 1619. I am not the one to believe that the nation-state or the the national identity is inevitable and Fukuyama is not the end of history (laughs) in many ways. I think we can talk very seriously about transnational, regional, global entities that can, with a little time, thought, resource commitment, can have the same effective influence upon the global challenges that we as a species now face. So no, I don't think that the nation state or national identity is inevitable. I don't think it's even default. What's interesting to me about this essay of Fukuyama's is that I find it in a certain tension, in fact, with his end of history essay, And I disagree with both the argumentation and the conclusions of both of those essays. But (laughs) he's consistent. He's consistent. (laughs) He's consistently trying to be Hegel. (laughs) Um, But I think where he fails to be Hegel is he doesn't see his argument at the end of history is flying in the face of his argument in this essay. And I mean that in this sense. In the end of history essay, his argument was history is leading toward liberal democracy with the fall of communism. We see the triumph of liberal democracy, and so history is at an end. Now, the liberal part of liberal democracy is democracy that is also based on a notion of rights. And those rights can always be claimed against the democracy part of liberal democracy. So that once the democracy tries to prevent my exercise of rights, then that's the end of the democratic moment and the emergence of the liberal, capital L, moment into liberal democracies. In this essay, he seems not to acknowledge at all the claims that any of these identities, in scare quotes, of identity politics, in direct quotes, their claims to rights in the face of democracies. And now he's claiming that those claims to rights are flying in the face of national identity, which then by the end of the essay, he wants to say, oh, by the way, national identity is also the safeguard of liberal democracy. 
And I just can't reconcile those two claims. I think the book and the essay end in disaster, but I, I just don't see how he, in his own head, reconciles these two. Can I just read the last two sentences of this essay? Quote, democracy means that the people are sovereign, but there is no way of delimiting who the people are. They cannot exercise democratic choice. Thus, political order at both the domestic and the international level depends on the continuing existence of liberal democracies with the right of inclusive national identities. Now, two things about this conclusion of Fukuyama. One, he has literally spent the last two preceding pages (laughs) setting up the reality of the situation of liberal democracy nation states in the current global economic, moral, political, and social world. So he has set up already that the true problems facing liberal democratic nation states are global problems. They're not national problems. Secondly, he dismisses out of hand the possibility of some global approach to the problems that face liberal democratic nation states by saying no one's thought of a good solution to a global democratic order, so that must not work which is bullshit. So here's what I don't think that he's considering, and sorry, here's my Derrida coming out again, is that he's just not getting at the fundamental problem of the phenomenon that he's describing, namely that democracies, quad democracies, are always existing in a kind of tension with themselves. That democracies are, by definition, apparatic. In order for democracies to exist, they have to delineate a people as belonging to some kind of shared identity. And at the same time, by delineating those people as a demos, as a people, they have to exclude other people, other members of the demos. So democracy is always a contestation. Democracy is always a negotiation of borders a bartering with who counts and who doesn't. It's always an argument. It's always a discussion. That, I think, is a fundamental problem that Fukuyama quite simply ignores in this essay, despite the fact that he sets up all of the architecture for addressing that very problem. So, Lee, you're pointing out this, what Derrida would call autoimmune condition of democracy. And I think that that characterizes what my problem was with this Fukuyama essay that we were looking at today versus his end of history argument, one of the primary ways in which those who are in favor of both nation states and, by the way, also capitalism, try to circumvent this autoimmune problem with democracy is to point out the liberal part of this, namely going back to rights. And yet, Fukuyama doesn't understand that part of the who we are as a people might actually be founded on the notion that we insist on the inalienability of these rights. I think that you're getting to exactly the problem with Fukuyama's Mm. essay here, which is that the way he sets up the problem of national identity and what motivates him to ask the question, why does national identity matter, is, in his estimation, identity politics. The contestations inside of a multiracial, multi-class, diverse democracy the contestations of identity that happen inside of that kind of democracy. His answer to this is liberal democracy. And what he doesn't realize is that liberal democracy itself, by definition, is always a contestation. That's always what it is. It is never an identity. It is never the case that members of a democratic community have an identity with that democratic community that democratic community is nothing other than the contestation of those democratic members of that community about their identities. So, Charles, let me bring 
us back to our original question. Are we United States? And if so, how? And if not, why? I would argue that we are not united. We are not the United States. I would argue that there has always been a dynamic and a consensation within this particular political entity between class differences and racial differences, ethnic, religious, geographical distances. And the fundamental critique that I have of Fukuyama and his argument is that he is unwilling to be honest and confront the fact that the United States is the exact opposite in its construction of national identity from what he asserts as the way that national identities get constructed. That we have Mm -hmm. been a society based upon a particular racial and class hegemonic dominance that we have been a society that has been closed versus open with the discourse of being liberally democratic, that we are a society that has benefited and utilized immigration, not as a problem, but as an incredible boon, regardless of the ways in which the people from overseas or across the border have entered into the society. So this is an amazingly paradoxical effort on the part of Fukuyama, who is arguing against the very same thing that he thinks that he affirms. Mm-hmm. That the state of the that union the state of is the not union strong. has always been fragile because the union has only understood itself to be this limited entity that serves the interests of a very small group of people that has only in a very stingy way been expanded beyond the original power holder. So I think this is a very important article, but not for the reasons I think Fukuyama fans would think. I think this is a very important (laughs) article in that the critique and the doubt and the dubious approach are actually are the beginnings of the ways in which we can move beyond the problems that we find ourselves in as a society. Uh, Noelle has just flashed the lights, so it's last call. Before she calls last call, I just want to remind listeners that you can support us on Patreon. Just go visit our page at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. Hey, guys, I've actually called a lift, but I put in America (laughs) as our home destination. So I'm not really sure where we're going to Can I get dropped in Canada? Is that... Possible. I'll pay. I'll pay the extra fare for for the trip. And to I'm Toronto. going to Mexico. <laughs> and I think I'm just going to walk. So, <laughs> good night, everybody. <laughs> Does this cab go to Poland? <laughs> <laughs>